Hey everybody, welcome to a very unique episode of Tech and Beer. We are live today from the uh, Halifax Club in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and we are attending the KIPS, first ever KIPS Nova Scotia Tech Panel and Awards. And we've got a great live audience today of about 45, 50 people that have shown up. Thanks for coming, everybody. <laughs> and we've got an awesome panel of uh, local tech leaders that are going to be talking to us about the uh, importance of professionalism in IT. And if you're not familiar with KIPS, uh, KIPS exists to promote professionalism in IT and to, to really drive growth within the industry. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to introduce the panel one at a time here. We have uh, Angela McCarthy. Angela is the uh, IS, or no, Manager of IT and Dig Digital Innovation at Nova Scotia Community College. Yeah, and I specifically manage the core services team within digital innovation and technology. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Thank you for coming. It's great. Happy to be here. Awesome. And we've got uh, Dea Pillay, who is the IS manager at Halifax Water. Yep. Yep. Thanks for coming, Dea. And we've got Giles Crouch, who is uh, former CIO of Saltwire Networks and uh, CIO, CMO for hire now at um, Expansive. Thanks for coming. Awesome. So if, uh, I hand it over to you first, Angela, and uh, ask you the first question. If you could give us kind of a little bit of an intro into yourself and uh, talk to us about why IT is, or professionalism in IT is important to you. Hi everybody, I'm happy to be here. Um, just kind of as a little bit of an insight into my background, I've been working in IT, uh, specifically in the Halifax area actually, since the mid to late 90s. Um, I've worked in, uh, I work in higher education now, very happy at the Nova Scotia Community College. I've also worked in healthcare, I've worked in oil and gas, I've worked in uh, technology, and I've had a really exciting and interesting career. I started at a time when it was really uncommon for women to be in technology. And in some, in some circles, it still is, um, which is very unique and interesting. We bring, as women, uh, an interesting perspective, I think, to the table that is often not necessarily represented otherwise. Um, the reason that I think professionalism in IT is so critically important is because many of you can probably speak to this, without it, the delivery of whatever you are working on becomes incredibly difficult. So <clears throat> if I think back to some of the more challenging projects I've had over the years, the challenges we had were, were frankly not uh, technical in nature. They were based in um, a lack of respect for team members. They were based in personality conflicts. And when you have a really good set of rules to follow, of sort of a professional code of conduct to follow, it gives people bookends to understand what is the appropriate way to interact with professional colleagues. You know, in IT we tend to be very casual. Um, I've worked in, in some uh, R&D organizations where if you showed up in anything more than your pajamas, people wondered what job interview you were having later in the day. <clears throat> but uh, the fact of the matter is, regardless of attire, it really comes down to how we treat each other. Um, and it's easy when you are in a very casual environment to kind of slide into what I would refer to as sort of dining room table talk as opposed to boardroom table talk. So I think it really just gives people a structure to follow and a set of expectations that allows us to be far more productive as we're delivering service and developing projects. That makes sense. Absolutely. So you, you touched on there on the, how people treat each other. What, what would, be the, would that be one of the biggest challenges you've seen or would there be any other challenges that you've seen that have arose, risen out of unprofessionalism? 
Absolutely. I mean, if I, you know, if I take it down to kind of its base nature, I've had to manage through issues where certain team members were offended by other things that team members had said or worn even. Um, some of the topics that would have come up around, uh, around the table as we're discussing how we're going to successfully deliver a project. Um, and interestingly, I can't, I can't put aside my gender. Um, so that is a very real challenge and has been in my career. Um, you know, I, I don't want to make the conversation specifically about, um, you know, the, the division of gender in IT. And certainly it's, it's far better now than it was when I started my career, but I definitely faced misogyny when I was at, my, at the start of my career. And I've, I've spoken about that at other, at other meetups. Um, it was difficult uh, early in my career to prove myself as somebody that had a voice at the table that was worth hearing. Um, so what I find interesting about IT is how far we've come. Um, and uh, it's certainly an interesting climate currently with what we've got going on. But what I would say is <clears throat> the difference now versus 20 years ago uh, was that 20 years ago there was no conversation about it. It wasn't even discussed. Um, and now I, I rarely face that at any of the meetings, boardroom tables or projects I'm involved in. But it's also certainly fodder for, for open and authentic uh, conversation. So it's nice to see that I don't face it as much and my, my female colleagues don't, but in addition to that, where it exists, it's exposed and we discuss it and we, we work our way through it. Awesome. Mm -hmm. so, uh, and I would say I've loved my IT career. Excellent. Yeah, and I encourage young women regularly to move into IT. Uh, I help young women choose uh, pathways to uh, successful careers in IT, and it's a fun, fun place to work. I would very much encourage all young people in general, but particularly young women, to uh, to consider technical careers. It's uh, it's a game changer as far as one day or the next. You don't know what you're going to experience, which is super fun. And 20 years, just gone. So uh, how did you overcome the challenge? You said you faced some early challenges there. What did you do to overcome those personally? Well, in some cases, and it depended on the sort of the level I was working at at the time. As a junior person, I certainly leaned on some of my own mentors, and I had wonderful mentors, both female and male, uh, in the IT industry early on. Um, in addition to that, I am, um, I am vocal. So what I would say is if you don't say anything, there is no action for anybody else to take. Um, and there is certainly an appropriate way to do that. Um, and you can look to uh, peers that are supportive to help give you that voice if you don't have it. You can certainly look to other people that have been in the industry a long time, like myself, um, that can help you do that. I never really had a challenge in expressing myself, but what I didn't have was experience. So when I faced situations where I wasn't exactly sure um, how to ensure my voice was heard or just be recognized really at the table, um, I tried to become more interested in what the individual that I might have a problem with um, was working on. So you know, there's a line that I will often give young people which is, <clears throat> Be interested until you're interesting. So until you have um, sort of a, a scope of experience behind you that people want to talk to you about, like you wanting to talk to me now, other people are, are, are a wealth of knowledge for you to ask questions to, to be inquisitive about, how did they overcome certain challenges. So I often turn the table around and and would ask these individuals what they need from me. How can I be of assistance? Um, instead of sort of feeling, well, I guess I should just back away from this table, which is not in my nature naturally. So I would say um, challenge it, identify it, speak 
articulately about it. It is okay to say, I am being ignored at this table and I'm part of this team. Um, and then show interest in the other team members um, and the attitudes and opinions they bring to the table. Many times you're not necessarily understanding the perspective that they have. And just discussing that perspective is really what is going to bring you to a solution. It's not magical. We do this technically all the time. I mean, all of you have been in rooms where you have debated something technical. There's no reason why you can't debate the approach that is being used in a particular team to deliver the service that you're trying to deliver. Makes sense. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. So, yeah, we'll move down the line now. Yes. Hi. <coughs> my name is Dyer and um, my background starts at Maritime Life here in Halifax. Uh, worked there for a few years, went to uh, Manual Life in Toronto, then moved to Los Angeles, then came back to Halifax as a consultant, and moved back to Toronto as a consultant, and then came back here to work for government. So I span all kinds of places, and uh, in my experience, the advice you give depends on the situation you're in. Not all of those entities work in the same way. The uh, public sector is non-profit and therefore doesn't want to lead, be leading edge and so forth. So the answers to questions are never the same. It does depend on your circumstance. And uh, I, 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 I've coached about technology to smaller municipalities that literally have two people on staff versus when I worked at uh, the Halifax Regional Municipality, we had 200. That's not the same advice that you give. So I want to coach professionalism in a way that says, recognize where you're working. Obviously, professionalism has a standard and so forth, but in a two-person organization, you're gonna be a lot more casual, there's going to be more shortcuts and so forth, but in a 200-person organization, you've gotta have standards, you've gotta have practices, you've gotta communicate well. Uh, it is not only about what you say, it is how you say it. As uh, Angela has mentioned, you know, being respectful also is a key to professionalism. Uh, I recently onboarded, I think, six or seven people for a project, and I spend half a day with those people uh, talking about our standards, which is a contribution to professionalism, of course, and help talking about respectful workplaces and how different cultures, different people perceive the words you say differently. Just be respectful. Sometimes they don't mean offense, it's just how they were brought up and how they were taught. And if everybody's respectful to each other, then you've got a good working environment. And again, back to the professionalism theme, uh, I've introduced uh, ITIL in our organization in order to get some standard practice and consistent ways of doing things. So I joined Halifax Water six years ago. And depending on who approached you, you got a different level of service. They, they were nice, they were polite, to fault, but certain people had a better approach. And by introducing a standardized set of practices, it didn't matter who I sent for the job, they dealt with our clients and our employees in the same way and delivered the same level of service in the same manner. Because what would happen before is one guy would go and tweak a few things and fix these things 
and something would work, but perhaps something else wouldn't. And then they'd go and do something totally different on this computer, and now we've got you know, 400 computers all looking a little different. <laughs> That's not good for some support, and no, Angela knows all about that. So by introducing a set of practices like ITIL and standards, we were able to increase our productivity level. In addition to that, I highly subscribed to, uh, of course, the PMI. Uh, project managers need a level of understanding, practice, and experience in order to be able to execute on the projects. Now, in, the, in their case, executing is one thing, but planning is necessary in all of it. A anybody can walk up and do things by the seat of the pants, and by the way, that was me. So I, I, I say this with experience, that you can get the job done, that's not the point, but how you get the job done, and whether you've met the expectations of the person you're doing the job for, is what a professional and standardized approach will yield you better results. Uh, and I can, as I said, I can say that through experience. I was a consultant, I'd walk in, do my thing, walk out, and then you'd hear about two months later, well, that was a shitty job. You thought you did a great job walking out. I delivered what you asked for. Now, that's the problem at requirements. You know, it's a key. BAs, again, practice professionalism. You may think you understand what they want, but, but sometimes you don't, and it's great being a consultant because you can walk away and <laughs> not face the consequences. No offense, by the way, to <laughs> I was there. <laughs> uh, so by, uh, in, in my view, professionalism, communication, respect, those are all necessary uh, for a successful career. So, so you mentioned there, you touched on the difference, um, you know, how different people communicate with each other and respect with understanding people. Um, we live in a very multicultural world now and Halifax has got a lot of people from different places. Have you seen or do you, how, how do you feel that impacts professionalism? Having different people from different backgrounds trying to communicate together. Yeah, um, I, I think that I, I personally have noted that those with a more professional attitude and, and approach are able to not necessarily offend as many people, <laughs> to be tr <laughs> truthful. You're going to offend people. Look, I've, I've been on the news and in <laughs> Frank magazine, <laughs> and I don't intend tend to do those things. So it's not avoidable, but I think there's a better outcome by indicating, by treating people respectfully, recognizing what they have to contribute yourself also contributing as you should. Yeah. Awesome, thanks. So yeah, we're moving on down, we're down to, uh, to Giles. I, I sort of um, come in, I guess, from, from a digital, anthropolo digital anthropologist or anthropological view, um, you know, and my background is really I started selling technology and, and to give you a sense of how far back that goes, I sold a voicemail system to a law firm in uh, 1991, and it was a two gig hard drive for $120,000. <laughs> so, 
Um, and uh, it was, was great because I hit my numbers. I'm going to get a bonus and it's wonderful. I'm coming to the office two days later. And, you know, they, the law firm had literally ripped it out of their telephone room and, and dropped it off on the front door. Um, and just after coming back from a celebratory breakfast with the VP of sales. Uh, so it was a bit of a downer, but what we realized, and I learned a lesson from that, is we'd gone and installed this, this voicemail system, but we hadn't shown anybody how to actually use it. And you remember, this is 1991. I mean, now voicemail is, is, is an invisible technology, and it's as familiar to us as picking up a telephone. But we hadn't trained anybody. We hadn't taught them how to use that. Um, so that was a really early lesson, and then in, and into marketing, and the marketing of technology and bringing technologies to market around the world, um, some of them from Halifax and some are from the States. Um, and then and eventually moving into that role of, of uh, you know, having been a CIO and, um, and, and so I have sort of two perspectives on technology. And coming at it from an anthropological view, which is where a lot of my work is starting to happen these days, I notice a, a very big shift in technology. So when I look at technology as a whole and professionalism and and, and, and being involved in the tech world, it's almost like we're in a sort of Harry Potter phase, you know, where we're the wizards and everybody else is the muggles. You know? <laughs> yeah. We know all these words and these acronyms and people come and ask us questions and sometimes it's hard for us to communicate really effectively what that solution is that we're proposing and how that will work. And then I also blame Hollywood a little bit because Hollywood portrays those of us in the technology industry as either brilliant hackers that can sit down in front of a laptop and in 30 seconds we've saved the world, you know, because we've typed a line of code. Yeah, and, and, and then, or the other extreme of, you know, we've got a hoodie over our head and, and we're hacking into systems and we're trying to take down the world. And it's sort of, those are the two extremes. So it, it sets up, um, a set of bad, uh, difficult expectations on the behalf of the C-suite and of the people that use the tools that we deploy and that we create on, on a daily basis. And we are creators in the technology industry. We're very creative in what that we have to do. I, I don't think we think of that very often, but we are. So it, to me now, with where technology is coming from, uh, for us, professionalism is really critical because it comes down to, to really two key words um, in, in the world today of technology technology, excuse me. The first one is trust. And you know, we, for, for years, the technology that we used were tools, just like ancient times when we picked up a hammer or we had a knife or we had an ax and we knew what to do with it. And it was very visible, it was very something we could touch and, and work with. And then PCs came along and technology was like that. The internet used to be a place that you had to go to. You had to sit down in front of a computer, you had to log on. I remember the days of dial-up um, and, and it was painful. Um, and then we sort of moved along to a, a phase now where the internet is everywhere, all the time. We don't turn our phones off. That is our portal into the internet. We've essentially become cyborgs because we put ourselves out there and a conversation can happen with things that we've said um, and we don't even participate. And so technology being so ubiquitous, so easy to access and such an incredibly low cost compared to where it was years ago means that we now have a trust factor because we're not touching the technologies that we're developing anymore. And I talk about artificial intelligence and analytics. So we're getting to that phase where the technology is getting really interesting because it's becoming invisible. And we can't see it, we can't touch AI. AI is something in our head, it's a concept. The very same as political systems, religions, and rule of law. That's where all of these new technologies are. They sit up here in our head and are kind of a bit cerebral and out there. But that means that people are placing an incredible amount of trust in us 
and the way that we're deploying and using these technologies. Take, for instance, predictive analytics and the impact on human agency and free will. Um, gut data governance and data breaches and how companies deal with that and how we deal with the technologies that we deploy. And the other side is invisibility because all the other word is invisibility because things, technologies are becoming increasingly invisible. So it places a degree of trust in us that we've never had to really deal with before. You didn't really, you know, we used to talk about workflows and deployment and getting the technology out into the field and our biggest concern was can we, you know, manage to get all those uh, software licenses activated on 800 or a thousand desktops and you know it's just not it's, we're still doing that to some degree but it's very different to what it was and so that means it's invisible technologies and trust is a, is a huge factor so you've got an interesting background there touching on the kind of the business side and the technical side do you think, from a professionalism perspective, there's any differences with dealing with those two sides of the IT world now? Because it's, it used to be very, very technical, and the, the business side is having more and more of an impact in IT. So what differences do you see and what challenges do you see surrounding that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, in, in one side, what I've seen in a lot of organizations, and, I, and I've worked with a few in the, in the past few years, where now you know, IT was sort of that department that was down in the basement, and there was a locked door and key cards, and it was kind of frightening. And, and nobody wanted to go down there. And now it's sort of opening up. And increasingly in organizations, I'm seeing that the IT teams are being deployed out into other departments. So they're, they're, they're moving out into the marketing team and working with marketing, because as marketing increasingly uses data analytics and makes data-driven based or database decisions. In, in the media industry, if you look at the Washington Post, you, you they have now an IT team, what they call engineers. So they call all their IT people engineers. And they have, a journalist has, supporting that journalist, she will have um, a, a data scientist, a data storyteller, and she might have a coder as well that can help develop things. So there's like three people supporting this journalist, and they don't ever go and sit in the IT department. You know, they're, they're engineers and they're part of the whole organization. So we're starting to spread out into the organization. So it sets a whole different um, set of expectations on how we behave within the workplace, how we work with others, and how we communicate our skills and capabilities in the organization. We don't see a lot of it in Atlantic Canada because we don't have a, a sizable organizations and, and a lot of IT um, folks where we automatically blend in with the organization. The other side that, that represents a challenge is you know that you know all these software as a service companies come out what's their number one message as soon as they start marketing their product? You don't need to call IT, right? <laughs> and, and we know that that's dangerous because <laughs> then you know I did an audit with a company uh, the other year, and we looked at all the software as a service tools that they use, and they thought they were spending about 20 grand a year in all the different cloud services that different departments were using. And uh, the results of the uh, IT audit that came back, uh, the audit of cloud services, were they were spending $750,000 a year. Right? Um, and there were services out there like Dropbox, and, and people were using personal Gmail accounts. And I mean, it was, just, it was a total mess and a nightmare. It is easy for any department uh, within an organization to go out and access a lot of these tools. And they, they've often feared contacting IT because it's like, no, you can't use that, and we've got to lock it down, and you know, passwords, and cybersecurity. And um, so it, it means the dynamic is changing in, in how um, IT has to work with employers and has to work with different departments within, within the organization. 
so this is a question probably for Angela here, uh, although you can probably all answer it. Um, so yeah, first one, first come, first served. <laughs> uh, so what differences are there between uh, working for a public sector organization and a private organization when it comes to professionalism? Is there is one more uh, difficult than the other, or are there any other challenges kind of around around those differences? I know you've worked in both. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would say um, in, a, in a public uh, situation or quasi-public uh, environment, you know, to speak to what Daya uh, spoke to earlier, and you already really touched on this, is there is really a set of expectations that may not necessarily exist in private industry, or if they exist in private industry, they're not actually policy or procedure. You know, you mentioned respectful workplace and any of the public institutions that I've worked in, and I've done work with the provincial government as well, and I previously worked with the Canada Revenue Agency. Um, those folks actually have policies based on um, appropriate behavior. You know, some of you might be familiar with this is a safe space. You can share whatever it is you're, you're thinking, technically or otherwise, on what we're working on in this place without judgment, without fear of, um, of a negative response from the people at the table. <clears throat> I don't want to paint private industry to say that you can expect that all the time, but in private industry, in many cases, um, it's a little bit more casual in the sense that there isn't a policy that you can necessarily point to. Um, in many cases, it's really more of an understanding and the culture that it drives. Um, what I would say is I've had great experience in private industry, and even in, in organizations that didn't necessarily have respectful workplace-based policies, um, at the end of the day, I don't want to say something this simple, but it's about human behavior. We are all human beings. Wouldn't it be great if we could just treat each other nicely because we're human beings? Um, and I've had the great fortune of working in many uh, private firms with amazing technology mentors who set that culture. You know, culture <clears throat> is not driven from the bottom up. It is driven from the top down. Um, and there needs to be an expectation set by the leaders in any organization, regardless of whether it's public or private, as to what the expectation is around appropriate behavior, appropriate interactions. Um, and I, it doesn't need to be contrived or forced. Again, in many cases, it's what we all learned when we were in school and we were dealing with our, our peers and the other folks in our class and how we interacted with our teachers. This is an extension of what most of us learned in, uh, in secondary school. You know, so I would say for me the big difference really is whether or not there is um, policy that is, that is written and standard operating procedures related to a respectful workplace. Um, and in addition to that, it's really the culture. We have an amazing culture at the Nova Scotia Community College. Um, it's incredibly supportive. I love walking through the building just to grab a coffee because I'm very much behind the scenes. I manage core services, which is largely infrastructure. Um, and I love going up to the atrium and grabbing a coffee and seeing students and hearing what they might be working on. Sorry if there's any students here. I do eavesdrop on you when I walk through the building. Because um, I want to hear about what is exciting and what projects they're working on and all of those sorts of things. Um, and you see that both in, um, in, in public and, and private, and there's really no difference in the level of excitement people have when they bring to the projects, right? It's really, um, it's really about making sure that everybody makes the best contribution that they can make, um, and whether that's based in policy or just a really strong corporate culture driven by the leaders at that organization, um, the end result is the same. It becomes a great place to be and, and to learn and to work. Did you wanna, yeah, absolutely. So I'll just take a slightly different tack to talk about my view is that the uh, private sector 
tends to lead the way and accepts risks in the deployment of technology that isn't tested. Uh, in my experience, the public sector is risk adverse. And so we don't want to be laggards, but we're more middle of the road. We are not early adopters in most of this technology. And so that, to me, is some of the key differentiators that I've found. Yeah, it's so true. Um, having worked with, and I've worked with different governments, and I've worked with you know, the, the UN, and even, even working with the UN, seeing really different dynamics in, in, in how they work. Um, and you talk about professionalism and respect in the workplace. I remember almost 20 years ago uh, having product management um, under, under my belt in the, in the marketing department, and, and I, so I hired a product manager, and she would have to work with the software engineers um, in, in product development. So she went into the very first meeting, and I had given no thought to it. She was brilliant, and I thought she was extremely capable, and, and off she would go. Well, it wasn't half an hour into the meeting, she came back in absolute tears, just about ready to quit and walk out. And, and they had just been absolutely horrible to her. Um, and she didn't know what to do. She, couldn't even, she didn't even think she could talk to me. And it was, it was another female coworker on my team that came to me and said, look, we've got a situation. And, um, and it was really heartbreaking. And, and so then I had to go and spend that time to work with the software engineers to say, look, you know, gender is, it's, it's brains. It's, gender's irrelevant. Um, and, and from then in, one of the, the things that I've always thought in my head and, and I have tried to instill in teams is when you're in the workplace, everybody's a Ken and Barbie doll. Um, they're just there, gender's irrelevant. Um, it's that they're just, you know, you just look at everybody and you get to know who they are. Um, you, you, you know, whatever other impact is, it doesn't matter. It's what's up in the head and what the capabilities are. Yeah. So the other aspect that, um kind of touches on or kind of side by side with professionalism is ethics and um, how do you how do you see uh, with the deployment of so many tre new trends and new technologies um, if you're a business leader or you're a business owner or an organizational department head like how do you know that the people that are advising you and deploying technologies for you are making you know ethical decisions for you what are, what are some of the, can you speak to that a little bit like how, how do you deal with that challenge? Because that's a real challenge as well, because you, like you touched on the perception of IT people, um, some business leaders are not technical and they're, they're relying on people to advise them. So. Yeah, that's, that's a fun question. It, it kind of lights me up. Um, <laughs> only because, you know, I, I, it's funny, I was looking the other day at, at um, I sort of have about uh, 25, 27 CEOs that I talk to across Canada and some down in the US and the UK on a fairly regular basis, on an on-call basis. So I looked at what the main concerns were, like what was the number one topic that they were talking to me over the last, the last year. It's been artificial intelligence. That has been the number one curiosity in the C-suite is, AI, where is it coming and what's going to happen? The question that follows it, and, and they've all had this concern, is what are the ethics behind AI? As it relates to what are we going to do with our employees? Because the initial perception of a lot of the C-suite is that if they bring AI in, they can cut their workforce by you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 percent. Um, how do they deal with getting rid of all those people? And most of the time I'm back saying, no, you're not going to get rid of those people. You're going to give them new opportunities. Um, but ethics is that number one concern. And the, the other concern with AI is also using uh, predictive analytics. And what are the ethics behind predictive analytics? Because it impacts human agency and free will. So it really comes down to a lot of the C-suite and a lot of companies are facing 
uh, questions that they've never really had to ask before. So are the tech giants. The biggest issues for tech giants like Facebook and Google and Microsoft today, they've got absolutely nothing to do with technology. They've got to do with human agency, with free will, with regulations, with data governance. They're having to ask these big societal questions, and I don't think when Zuckerberg started Facebook, he ever thought he'd be testifying in front of Congress. <laughs> like, it was the last thing on their mind. I mean, whenever we've deployed these technologies, it's fine, it's great, it's cool, everybody's going to use it. Well, we've just seen what's happened with fake news and all these others. Issues going on and a lot of companies are actually to some degree frightened now to deploy and become really innovative with technologies because they know they're going to have to face the ethical questions. Um, so it, it is a challenge. So, so how do you, as IT leaders, how do you teach ethics to, to people that you're working with? Do you want to take that, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I I really have a problem with teaching ethics, but you can set ethical examples. You can coach on ethics, coaching being different than teaching. And, and because if it isn't inherent in you, and I have had through my life some experiences where it doesn't matter how much. Co uh, ethics, by the way, goes to your credibility. Uh, we in IT, or at least in my type of position, have to make recommendations. Note, they're not direction. We used to be gods, we're no longer, we have fallen. Uh, we have executive to report to, and you suggesting politely, I'd like to go in this direction. And if you don't have the credibility, which ethics uh, by default gets you, being ethical, giving the right advice, sometimes to your detriment, being honest and open, uh, you won't get, you know, especially in senior positions, the respect or the uh, understanding you need when you try to push forward unpopular initiatives such as complex passwords. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, ethics is is really key in all of those aspects. So. Yeah, I would say it just kind of underlies everything. And you know, earlier we talked about ensuring that our client or our customer base has a trust in us as IT professionals to deliver what they need and to be able to speak to what they need from a user experience perspective, as opposed to, you know, uh, how much storage I need potentially. Um, and I would say the same thing about the teams. So if you have a team of folks that are delivering service, it, for me the ethical side of things really comes down to the relationship that I have with those folks. Uh, so much of what we rely on to provide um, IT service in a successful manner really sits with relationship management. It's re a relationship management between myself and the staff that uh, are pro providing that support. Uh, there's a relationship between the clients who are asking us for help in a way that technologists don't necessarily understand. They're asking it in a way that uh, they don't know how to speak the tech speak, nor should they need to. Heck, I don't want to speak tech speak most of the time. Um, many times I will tell my clients when they are putting in a request to our, uh, our ticketing system, our service desk, tell me what you're trying to accomplish. So recently I was working on um, a project to support our open house at the Nova Scotia Community College, which is happening next week on the 18th. Um, anyone that's interested, please come in. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and we were talking about, you know, what kind of technology we needed to support some of the things we wanted to do at the various campuses. And what I said to the business leaders that I was in the room with was, 
tell me what you are trying to accomplish. Um, what is your goal in that space? What are you trying to display? You don't need to tell me that you need a laptop or you need a projector or you need a screen or any of those individual items. Just tell me what you are trying to do in that space. And I, I said to put that right in the ticket because as technologists, the expectation is that we will take that and we will translate it into the experience they are looking to have. If you don't have trust between the business units and the service delivery organization that's bringing that to the table, you will never never have a successful event, you will never have, uh, you know, we wouldn't have a successful open house and we have it successfully every year. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, I've asked enough questions, so there's got to be some questions out in the audience here. We've got a, uh, a roving mic, which I'm going to bring out, so. <clears throat> Come on, there's got to be some questions. You answered everything. Everybody's, everybody's with everything wrapped up. We have a question back there, from Margaret. With all the changes that are coming with AI and all the things that are being developed, how do you see the jobs changing locally? I think the next question we're going to get them to come to us because so with all the changes, the question was, with all the changes coming uh, from AI, how do you see the jobs changing locally? <laughs> Boy, I love that one. Um, job titles that we don't even see today. Um, you know, on, on, the, on the one side, you've got the pundits that are saying there's going to, it's going to, you know, AI is going to create 300 million bazillion jobs and it's all going to happen in the next 20 years and there are things we've never heard of. Yeah, sure, we're going to create some jobs. We're going to lose an awful lot of jobs as well. Um, one interesting job I think that's going to uh, be created in somewhere in the next five to ten years uh, is an algorithmic ethicist. So it's a bit of a tongue twister. So <laughs> AI is, yeah, it's all about algorithms and, and, and analytics. And I think um, you're going to see companies that are going to want to have, or organizations and government may even have this as, as a regulatory impact. You, you may see, um, you know, the Nova Scotia Services Department um, has an algorithmic ethnicist and he goes out or she goes out and her job is to make sure that the algorithms those companies are using do not impact human agency or free will. Um, and that they don't do something illegal. Because algorithms are sneaky and they're hidden. And when you get to AI, we've now got algorithms that teach other algorithms that teach other algorithms. So I think uh, algorithmic ethicist uh, is going to be one. I think you're going to see more uh, anthropology people and sociologists deployed. Um, there's going to be a lot more opportunities. Sociologists have, have typically worked in, a, in, in part of society um, that we don't hear a lot about. And we're going to see them working. And I've, I've seen other companies that are now deploying digital anthropologists uh, within the companies and helping to develop products. So that's a couple of jobs. What about you guys? Yeah, I'm not so much going to talk about jobs as trends. Our industry has always evolved, and our jobs have always changed. It's one of the things, if, if, if you're doing the same job that you did five years ago, there's something wrong, because there's constant change in the industry. and. You know, unlike Giles, I, I'm unable to predict. We've got cybersecurity specialists now that I can't even buy if, the, if I had all the money I wanted. <laughs> it's tough to say what the next thing is. All I can tell you is the job you have today, I don't care what it is, is going to change. My job will change. All your jobs, because we're evolving. 
technology is becoming prevalent in society. It's a second thought. Before it was a specialty. I will tell you, it will not be a specialty. But the jobs I see hanging around are things like project managers and business analysts, because those are delivering products. I no longer program. I don't know too many people who do. There's got to be somebody out there who does. And perhaps my son, who's going to the Nova Scotia Community College, by the way, will, will be one of those people. But I'm just saying the technology is evolving rapidly in these days, and I just have no guess as to what's next. You know, I would, um, <clears throat> I certainly have no sweeping insight into this other than to say, to pick up on, a little bit on what Giles was speaking to, it really is about moving into um, the business space or the, the client space or having the client lens or the consumer lens on the situation. Um, you know, it's funny, I actually have a degree in sociology and I did that before I did uh, my information technology training and um, I say all the time, I actually use my sociology degree more as a, as a technology leader than I do my IT training. Um, I haven't programmed in like, I think I did that maybe 20 years ago for five minutes. Um, but really it's more about understanding the perspective that your client or your customer or the problem that you're trying to solve um, understanding that lens, not as a technologist, but as how that solution is going to land in whatever audience you're trying to put it out there in. So a lot of the, you know, we've all done tech support for our parents or our grandparents or our family, and they think you're some like magical wizard because you can put two email accounts on one smartphone. Um, and uh, that is really going away. That type of support is really not necessary anymore. You know, I look at my children, and one of my children who's going to the Nova Scotia Community College, um, um, is uh, is is a PC gamer, and you know I, I look at his his computer that we bought him for Christmas last year, and there's no enter key. There's like a guy jumping on on the key. I, I can't even look at the board and understand it. And when he was deciding what career path he was going to go into and what type of training, he's doing the electrical construction program. He's becoming an electrician, and his his dad and I were like, but you're so technical. But he's not. Just because he spends 10 hours on a computer and he's a PC gamer instead of a console gamer doesn't make him technical. And he's looking at us like, you guys have lost your minds. But honestly, 20 years ago, and my husband is also in technology, 20 years ago, any PC gamer, I promise you, was becoming a programmer. That was the job they were doing for sure. Um, and that is vastly different today. These are just things that the younger folks spend their time doing. There is no connection between that and then parlaying it into a career. It just, it doesn't occur to them. So I would say the trend really is away from technology as a thing and really just the experience that clients and customers and consumers and all of us need to live our lives in a technical way really is what I would say. We recently um, at the Nova Scotia Community College changed the name of our department. So we were previously uh, inf information technology services, like literally every single department at every single higher ed university. Um, and we changed our name to digital, um, <clears throat> excuse me, digital innovation and technology. Um, and it has a really cool acronym of DIGIT, which I kind of like. But, um, but having said that, it's really because it is about the experience that we are providing to people. They could care less what platform it's on, what code might be running behind it. It's not, it's not a thing. So if we look at the types of careers um, that I think will emerge, it's really more about um, the experience and kind of sitting between the experience and the technology that we need to put out there to deliver the experience people not even want, they just expect it. Mm -hmm.
You know, we said uh, someone mentioned Hogwarts earlier, and um, the uh, the audiovisual folks that support our college report to me as part of my team, and we have a little bit of a of an internal saying, which is, you know, this isn't Hogwarts. We're not wizards. However, that's the, that's the magic, right? That is what our customers have come to expect from us. I think moving forward, there's no wizardry. They just expect it to work. So I think it's really moving away from um, what's, the, the, what's the technical role I'm looking to play, and it's more about what is the experience I am looking to deliver to the business unit, functional group, et cetera, that, that I support. So every programmer in the room is updating their resume right now, right? <laughs> so, awesome. So any other questions? We have a hand. Come on, James. You can come forward, yeah. You can shout it out. to come here and repeat the question because I, <laughs> I didn't even <laughs> Thanks guys, you're all jerks. Um, so my, my name is James Burchell and I am a coder and I am a systems architect and I have done a lot of the physical aspects of, of the technology that we're talking about. I understand deeply AI, I understand deeply um, the systems that we're building. So one of the questions I have is as technology leaders, um, how do you know that what you're asking to be done is being done that what is actually being implemented is ethical, is professional, and is competent. Thanks. Great question. Yeah, it's a good question. It goes back to like that job of an algorithmic ethicist. Um, I've practiced that a lot. Um, it's, it's, um, it's, it's tough because you're going to have to put in methodologies and, 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 and considerations when you're, you, you even sit down to say, okay, we want to deploy an AI within the workforce. We had a, there was a guy earlier this year that was fired by an AI system because it, it, it got messed up with a cross signals with what things should have done within the, the HR system. He should never have been fired, but he was. Um, someone at the planning stage of that technology didn't think about the implications of what was happening. Um, and it's where you're going to have to, where HR people are going to have to have a greater role in the organization and, and what the ethics of the organization are and what the regulations of the organization and industry are. It's part of the reason that government um, around the world are starting to say, you know, what's the rules and ethics that should be, should govern not just tech, tech companies, but the companies using the technology. Unless, of course, you're China, which is deploying their social uh, credit system so that, you know, if you misbehave or you get a speeding ticket, all of a sudden you're not allowed to travel to another part of the country. You know, it's deployed, they're building it now. Um, we are asking more of those questions here, but it's going to be a responsibility of a manager who's going to have to have some ethics training. It probably, I would envision that IT courses and um, uh, universities in the very near future, like, like Dalhousie and probably NSCC, will have an ethics course for coders and for developers. So it needs to be something that's implemented at the educational system uh, as well as within the organization. It's part of an answer, but I don't have the whole one. Right. Right, that's right, it does, yeah, yeah. Yep. So that's good. Um, it's probably gonna need more training. I think on top of ethics, you're going to have to have courses around human agency and free will and what does that mean? Um, because that's part of that consideration that, that people have to have. So I don't know if 
if specifically I manage people and I don't measure ethics. Ethics is somewhat subjective and we are in a unionized environment and that would be a challenge. But what I do measure is the response from our customers, the employees, about the service they've received and, and, and how that service was delivered, how my staff conducted themselves. So I, I obviously observe in a very small number of uh, situations how they actually act, but their performance and the feedback I supply my staff are solely based on the customers I have and their feedback that they provide me. This guy did great, he asked about these things, this guy came, he dropped it off and walked away. All of those are the feedback mechanisms, but I think um, you know, it, it's great that we have ethics courses, but managing them in, in my workplace on a day-to-day -day basis, I can tell you that I, feedback will tell me that this person acted in a way that my clients respected. And that's what I interpret to be an ethical behavior, is, is the reaction. But I find, uh, personally, I'm just saying we've got to be very careful about ethics. Culture matters, I will tell you that. Where you are, the position you're in, what the respect you pay a general manager versus an employee. There, there are various factors, but how that person feels is always the same, and that's what matters to me. Yeah, I would actually echo what, what both of these gentlemen have said, which is there's almost two conversations happening here, right? So there's really ethics around decisions you're making if you are, in fact, programming. Um, and Giles spoke earlier to putting business analysts and functional analysts and those folks out in the business. I think that's one way to bring um, an understanding that hopefully will will drive the ethics you're looking to um, to to push in in AI development, but to be honest, I would agree completely with Daya, which is for me, I know that based on the feedback. So one of the um, one of the things I have in my portfolio at the college is the ITSM program, um, and that was something that we we brought in last year when we replaced our technology service desk, and we actually used ITIL framework as well. Um, and for me, we do customer surveys on our service. Um, I get regular feedback. I'm the escalation point, so I generally find out every time something doesn't go correctly. Um, and that really, it, it's their coachable moments. There's feedback that you can, um, sometimes there's a user education required, which is certainly could fall into the area of ethics. Um, so I would say it's really a combination of all those things. It's what decisions are being made and how we're building the systems. And then it's really what is that human interaction um, at the front line of, of support, of technical support. So I think it's kind of, it's all encompassing really, um, from soup to nuts to use that uh, terminology. And, and so true. And I, I think one other thing, and it's sort of a, the higher, and it's like with artificial intelligence, one of my biggest bones is that um, AI for the most part has been developed by men, and they tend to be white men in Western cultures. Um, and that's a huge problem. In fact, it's, it's absolutely massive. Uh, you know, AI needs many more women that need to be working on it, but we also need cultural impact of AI because we need different cultures from around the world because we want AI to really be good and reflect humanity. That means it needs men, women, and different cultures um, that are helping to input to the development of it. And that, and that goes to the ethics with all of those tools is that more input you have from different genders and cultures and populations, the better it's going to be. Well, thanks a lot, guys.
That's, that's awesome. We're going to... Uh, that's all, no, do you want one? We can get you a drink. There's lots of drinks. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're going to do a little bit of a change up now. And I'm going to invite up uh, Darcy and uh, our team from KIPS because we've got a, a little bit of a, an awards presentation that's going to happen. So a couple of our members are, are being uh, honored tonight. And we have some representatives from uh, uh, KIPS National that are going to be uh, presenting them with something that's kind of special for us. So yeah. How's it going? It's going good. There you go. Great, great event. Um, my name's Larry Sampson. Um, I'm a past national president of the Blue Nose section here in, uh, in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Um, I left the province 20 odd years ago before uh, the legislation for the ISP designation came in. Um, I also noted when I was looking at the biography of, of our uh, recipients tonight that they both became much more active in KIPS about the same time that I left. I'm not sure that was cause and effect or, or what have you. Um, but it, it is indeed a pleasure for myself and, and Darcy to be here tonight at what is really a, a top drawer event. I'd like to uh, offer my congratulations to the organizers and the participants. This is a meaningful, important discussion and it's great that you get such a turnout um, to, uh, to, to contemplate and hear and ask questions. So uh, congratulations to all of you. So um, I get to put the initials FCIPS after my name. That stands for a fellow of the Canadian Information Processing Society. And um, Fellows are individuals that the, the society acknowledges have made a substantive contribution to some dimension uh, of the profession or the sector that, that um, uh, was deemed important and useful. And um, the reason Darcy and I are here tonight is in fact to acknowledge two individuals from uh, here in Nova Scotia who've, who've made such a contribution. Um, and it's, it's particularly relevant and germane based on the, uh, the panel discussion that we just had because both of these individuals were in the, in the middle of this. Being a fellow means uh, many things. Um, it means you're getting recognition and recognition by your peers, which I think is important and something that we in the sector maybe don't do as frequently as, as we need to. Uh, it, it's also a mechanism to ensure that the experience and the knowledge that they've acquired uh, doing the things that they have done, that we continue to have access to that in a, in a, at a national level because the issues that you face here in Nova Scotia and that people face in New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island and throughout the Atlantic provinces are the same challenges and the same issues that we're facing across the country and across the world. So having individuals who've been immersed in some of those things frequently and normally on a volunteer basis contributing their time and their effort is, is important, um, not just to KIPS but to everybody who uh, works in this profession or is a member of the sector. Now, 
me being an older person maybe not quite as sharp a mind as i used to have i'm going to require a little bit of a cheat sheet in order to help get myself through this but at this point i think i'm going to turn it over to darcy and we can talk about our first award recipient thank you so I'm, I'm also going to use a cheat sheet because I really don't know these individuals as well as all of you do. Um, but as fellows and members of the committee that evaluated this year's nominees, it was very clear to both us um, as well as the other members of the committee that their contributions have made and are continuing to make a difference. Lem joined the Board of, K of KIPPS Nova Scotia in May of 2001 and was deeply involved in the project to get the ISP legislation passed in Nova Scotia. The bill, or the legislation, Bill 119, the Canadian Information Processing Society of Nova Scotia Act, was passed and proclaimed in 2002. In May 2006, as KIPPS Nova Scotia Vice President, Lem was instrumental in the planning for Informatics 2007 in Halifax and then stepped into the role of president of KIPPS Nova Scotia in May of 2007 and joined the national board the, um, the following year presenting, representing KIPPS Nova Scotia, a role that he continues to play. So Margaret Havey, she served on the board of the director for KIPPS Nova Scotia on three separate occasions starting in 2002 and pretty much continuously since 2013. She served as a director at large and Nova Scotia representative for the Blue Nose section as president from uh, 2008 to May of 2017 and I understand just recently set down as sort of the interim president. Uh, she's actively worked at increasing the involvement of women in the sector, was a major contributor at the national level in the redevelopment of the KIPPS Code of Ethics, which was reviewed and approved by not only the KIPPS National Board, but also the Canadian Council of CIOs and the Privacy Commissioner of Canada. And she's currently working with the universities and the private sector in the province to help revitalize and modernize both the IT sector and the role for IT professionals. Now, that's not too shabby. And I'd like you to think about what Lem and Margaret have been involved in in the context of our panel discussion tonight. There's been a lot of discussion about professionalism and ethics. Um, we have individuals here who played central roles in not only getting Nova Scotia to enact legislation that recognizes professions, professionals in the sector, but also develop the code of ethics that is used nationally. And for those of you who may not be familiar with that, with this, both the ISP designation and as part of that, the code of ethics were written into, indirectly, into NAFTA. In NAFTA, there is a designation there, uh, there is a, a clause there that basically says professionals, quote unquote, are able to freely move with some, some restrictions, but less restrictions than most other occupations have, between Canada and the United States. Um, 
and they are very specific about what constitutes a profession. Engineers, doctors, ISP professionals. That code of ethics and the standards that, that KIPS used to develop the ISP designation are, were, were done in collaboration with the British Computing Society. The British Computing Society's um, uh, accreditation and certification standards were used as the basis for the similar standard that's being developed in the EU. Now, we, we live and work in a global economy. The type of, of standards and ethics we've been talking about here today apply globally. Think how much easier it could be for all of us to, to work in our profession on a global basis if the standards and the codes of ethics that we are using to do those jobs are more or less consistently applied across most of the globe. These are the types of things that these two, two individuals have, have helped move forward here in Nova Scotia nationally and internationally. And with that, I'd like to ask both Lem and Margaret to come forward. Lem, on, on behalf of KIPS National and your colleagues here in Nova Scotia, we'd like to welcome you as a fellow of the Canadian Information Processing Society. Margaret, same for to you. We'd like to welcome you to the group and congratulate you on your accomplishments. Thank you. Awesome, thank you very much. Congratulations, and um, we will be doing, uh, in the future, we will be doing uh, in-depth interviews with Lem and Margaret, and uh, going into detail on some of the things that they've been involved with over the years here in Nova Scotia, and uh, digging down into some of the gems and, and bits and pieces they might want to talk to us about. So yeah, congratulations, guys. Thank you. That's awesome. See you next time. <laughs>